Over a period of 20 years, the Long Island serial killer is suspected of murdering up to 16 people and dumping their bodies along the Ocean Parkway in Long Island. These crimes have never been solved, and as a result, the families of these victims have never seen justice. Some of these victims have never even been identified. This is Ossuary, and we're investigating the Long Island serial killer. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back to our um, sixth episode, our sixth full episode. I think mm-hmm. we have more. We have some mini-sodes. That Which aren't really that many. There. Let's yeah. be real. Turns <laughs> they're like, out, they're midi-sodes. They're, mm-hmm. mm, that's an episode. <laughs> Maxi-sodes. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for, for joining us for our last couple of episodes. We're, we're nearing the end of season one. Which is mm-hmm. so weird to say. <laughs> it's weird, so weird and it's crazy because we've done so much. Like, we really had no idea what we were doing when we started this. So We really um, didn't. And now, now here we are with all of you lovely people. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I guess um, let's just get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it, guys. So today our episode is going to be slightly different to the other episodes that we've done um, because this is going to be largely discussion-based. Really surrounding the series of the Long Island serial killer case that we haven't discussed already. We don't want to overlap too much with um, like the suspects that we've already gone through, but there are a lot of other theories surrounding this case that are really important. And I feel like a great place to start is the profile of Lisk. So New York Times ran a profile back in 2011, which I think at the time was considered the most detailed one that the public has had access to. It starts out with, you know, how most true crime aficionados expect. White male, somewhere in his mid-20s to mid-40s, has a girlfriend or a wife, family. He's financially secure, possibly even wealthy if we consider the possibility of him having a secondary home in Long Island, like a summer home, which we will kind of get a little more into later, and factoring in the affluence of the Oak Beach area in general. He has a steady job and he has his own mode of transportation, like a car or truck. He lives in or has lived in the area near Ocean Parkway. And as we've said, he has easy access to burlap sacks. Scott Bond, a sociology professor at June University and a serial killer researcher, which, hello, dream job. (laughs) So he said that Long Island serial killer could walk into a room and seem like your average Joe. He has to be persuasive enough and rational enough that he's able to convince these women to meet him on his terms. And he's demonstrated social skills. He may even be charming. That really ties into, for example, how Amber left her, um, her hotel room without even her phone or her purse. That really ties into the possibility that he is charming, that he does convince these women to be on like his own terms. So I feel like that's a really important Mm -hmm. point that you made. Yeah. And I mean, like he's got to be able to put you at ease enough that you would think of these things that like most women think of as necessities, especially in going out to meet strangers. Like you always have your purse, you have your phone with you in case you need to call somebody. And I mean, I think we, you know, we've seen that with killers like Ted Bundy. He gave off this persona of like, I am a trustworthy man who's not going to hurt you. Exactly. And I think that Lisk is probably that same sort of, you know, 
there's a reason why you're going to come with me in a place that you might not be familiar with, maybe even without your purse or phone. Mm -hmm. And also the notion of average Joe is so important because I mean, Mm -hmm. we've seen this so many times before, like BTK, the Golden State Killer and so many other serial killers. Most of the time, they don't look like the boogeyman that we expect them to. Mm -hmm. They seem so regular that we don't even bother to look below the surface. A lot of them can seem like pillars of the community too. Like you think Mm -hmm. of like John Wayne Gacy was involved with like local politics. He had a family. He had his own construction company. Like you don't think that something is wrong until Mm -hmm. all of this comes out later. Yeah, that actually segues pretty nicely into um, a little bit more of his profile. So Scott Bond goes on to discuss the profile of Lisk as being an organized killer, which Bond defines as characterized by repetitious, compulsive, or cyclical behavior. This is something that we've talked about a lot in our podcast, both with the Manorville bodies and the Gilgo Four. But another aspect of this organized killer personality is that he has the ability to blend back into their seemingly normal lives between killings, which (laughs) is incredibly terrifying, but also really important to think about that there's a chance that his family, if he has one, which, you know, according to this profile, he likely does at least have a significant Mm -hmm. other, they probably don't know. He has a very good way of convincing people of his trustworthiness you know there's not that like sort of reptile brain saying like warning sign warning sign red light flashing (laughs) yeah and so you know as a an opposite to an organized killer is a disorganized killer and bond goes on to to mention a killer like jack the ripper is disorganized Mm -hmm. uh his killings were spontaneous and haphazard potentially done in a manic state and he would leave his victims in the place that he killed them he didn't have any forethought he didn't plan it But Lisk plans his murders to a T. He details every action and seeks to maintain control of the situation at all times. This is significant because he contacts them through Craigslist, which is classified. So he already knows that the way that he has been targeting these victims is through a very controlled state. Mm -hmm. And then he has them meet him on his own terms and his own territory, and he disposes them in a pre-planned location that he's comfortable with and that he knows that he can control, Ocean Parkway. So Bond argues that he's likely transient or even summers in Long Island. And Sarah had just mentioned this, and we've talked about it a couple of times throughout our episodes, you know, that he has a killing season. A lot of these women have gone missing and were murdered in the summers. And Bond also says that he may have at one point lived in Manhattan because over a six-week period after the disappearance of Melissa Bartholomew, her cell phone was used to call her sister something like seven times. And he would ask, you know, do you know what your sister is doing? She's a whore. I'm watching your sister's body rot. I think he even also asked Melissa's sister if she was a whore just like Melissa. Each of these phone calls were traced back to Manhattan in crowded locations like Times Square or Madison Square Garden, which you can trace it back to a location, but there's dozens, if not hundreds of people on their cell phone at all times there. So we're dealing with someone that knows what they're doing. Somebody also pointed out um, in one of the articles, I think it was also the New York Times profile, that like not only are those busy areas, so it's hard to find somebody like if you're just looking around, but even if you have security camera footage, you wouldn't be able to place someone on a cell phone there with any sort of ease. Right. And I mean, I think in addition to the theory of him living in Manhattan, I think it's also a strong possibility that he worked there as well because those areas that he's calling from are filled with corporate offices. So I feel like that's definitely a possibility too. Yeah, especially if he is 
some sort of commuter worker, mm-hmm. um, which oftentimes those corporate offices are, you know, like finance offices or advertising agencies or these agencies that people can make a lot of money out of. And yeah. if they want to have sort of a... A summer house in Long Island, perhaps? Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they want to have that or they want to have an upper crust like lifestyle. They might live in New Jersey or Connecticut suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know, we're dealing with someone who clearly has, if not money, has access to money in some way. So we mentioned Joel Rifkin a couple of times, both in our mini-sode and in one of our Suspects episodes, just as a, you know, a precursor to the Long Island serial killer. But I think it's interesting that he says in his interview with Cuomo that certain things are hard to stop. And the Long Island serial killer, according to Scott Bond, likely hasn't stopped killing. It could be that he's in a similar like waiting period, like we talked about with BTK, or maybe he relocated and kept killing. But whatever the case is, this meticulous murderer would probably not have stopped unless there were some external pressures to keep him from acting out in his compulsion. So maybe he was arrested for another crime, he died, he was incapacitated in some way. Something else is keeping him from murdering if he stopped at all, you know? Um, Because like we said, it's not something that he can just turn off. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, the question I'm always asking is, did he just start committing murders in another city or another state? And I'm a huge believer in this theory. Unfortunately, sex workers are often the target of violent crime and the murder rates amongst this community are often generally high. However, I feel like it's a really big question we should ask. Are there other clusters of sex worker murders that could possibly be related to him? Totally. Or could possibly be him, right? I mean, I'm going to give some examples and I'm not saying that these are actually related. I'm just saying that it's an idea that I think as citizen detectives, as we are, we need to investigate. In the gaps of Long Island serial killers' crimes, and since the bodies were found at Gilgo, have there been any other reported clusters of sex worker murders? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to list off a few that I found. And again, I'm not saying these are related. I'm saying that these are unsolved clusters of the murders of sex workers, and they have some similarities Mm -hmm. to that of Long Island. So, first of all, a serial killer is suspected of murdering six women who were involved in sex work in East St. Louis between late 2003 to 2006. Interestingly, all of these murders occurred over the colder months between January and March, which, as we know, the Long Island serial killer did not appear to kill in these times in Long Island. Mm -hmm. And additionally, all of these women were victim to manual strangulation. Again, that's often something that's happened Mm -hmm. with the Long Island serial killer as well. Yeah. Another example, wait for it. This is fucking insane. There are 51 unsolved murders of sex workers in Chicago over 30 years. And please believe a serial killer is responsible for these. That's crazy. All of these were victims of strangulation and they all occurred on Chicago's west side, near south side and far south side. And what's... I mean, awful, but interesting as well is there is a linear pattern of bodies in the recovery sites on the Chicago near south side, which forms an almost perfect north-south line. And that also coincides with the Chicago Transit Green Line elevated train. That's terrifying. That sounds like something out of a movie. Well, well, that sounds like the eastbound strangler, doesn't it? Like, he Mm -hmm. had a very meticulously laid out dumping ground but then also so does lisk i mean yeah the gilgo four specifically they were 
so carefully placed right next to one another. And then we have the Manorville bodies who were mm-hmm. placed in the same exact area, like mm-hmm. one does when they have a compulsion to kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not something that should be overlooked. Obviously, might not be connected, but... Mm-hmm. Exactly. And in addition to that, from 1996 to 2002, 10 women who were involved in sex work were killed in Baton Rouge. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm sorry <laughs> I think if it's I'm better not. than I would. <laughs> I'm Australian and please forgive me. Um, and each woman was beaten or strangled and sometimes both. Mm. They were found completely or partially nude a day or more after they were killed. And five of the 10 bodies were found in a similar location within a mile of North Street Park. I mean, again, the strangulation and the dumping grounds Mm -hmm. all in like a very linear pattern, I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. And I mean, let's go back to Joel Rifkin for a minute. In that interview I've quoted a few times, he said, there were many clusters, sets of three. Three were dismembered, three were in oil drums, some were in water, some were on land. It was like my own little nightmare scenarios. And I'm repeating that again because what if he is just somewhere else, he's still murdering women and has not only changed his location, but has altered his MO to a certain extent to try to completely avoid a connection being made? Yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely something to think about. Um, especially with someone who's so meticulous of maybe having that forethought of if I change things here and there, it it could lead to me not being caught. Um, But I also think that with someone who is so compelled to kill in a way that is almost past forethought, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the change in MO specifically with, you know, the go-go for the surrounding bodies of like peaches, cherries, And then the Manorville bodies, it just seems so all over the place in some ways and in other ways super meticulous and contrived that there's also a possibility that we're dealing with two serial killers on Long Island. That's a huge theory that a lot of people subscribe to. Um, I think, you know, even the Suffolk County Police Department sort of assumes that there might be two killers Mm-hmm. And there has been crazy discussion anywhere from, you know, one killer trying to throw off the trail to his case by yeah. putting body parts like the Manorville body parts in the uh, Ocean Parkway dumping ground or, um, you know, having some sort of territorial rivalry, which I think like is... a play of dominance. Yeah, is yeah. definitely a crazy thought, but... Then again, we did have two serial killers operating on Long Island at the same time. Like yeah. we had Joel Rifkin and Robert Shulman. We literally have a precedence for this. Right, yeah. exactly. So I, I think that that's something that we have to think about is it's possible that we're dealing with one very meticulous, very controlling killer and one disorganized uh, sort of haphazard killer because there's just such a discrepancy between the disposal of some of the bodies. Yeah. Are you thinking like yeah. uh, peaches and cherries dismemberment mm-hmm. versus yep. versus yeah. like the Gilgo Four? Totally. I think that there's a huge difference in the way that someone psychologically approaches dismemberment uh, versus just sort of that strangulation and then like careful burial. I think <laughs> that there's this strange reverence that's given to the bodies. It's almost like sexual that like there's this ritualistic <laughs> aspect of how someone is killed and then disposed of and then dismemberment 
while it's very effective in uh, eluding forensic evidence, it's also in some ways sort of this like, I don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to cut this person out. panic. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's what you see in like pop culture references Mm -hmm. to murder. It's like, okay, now I have to dispose of the body. So we'll put Mm -hmm. it in the bathtub and we'll dump lye over it. Mm -hmm. And just like putting the bodies into a suitcase or into a Rubbermaid container, like what's on hand. Yeah. What's on hand. That is different to me than the four women who were buried in burlap. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, when we're dealing with someone who has that level of ritual and that level of forethought and like premeditation, the way that the bodies are disposed of are just as important. Mm. Because I think, you know, like there's the idea if it is one killer that it's an evolving MO. Exactly. And I feel like there definitely has some merit to it. It just seems like to hack up a body is more of a personal, intimate way to murder someone on top of already strangling them. Mm. Then to go down to dumping the body's hole and like it's it's almost like they're backing off from their MO slightly mm-hmm. and just dumping them whole um, after strangling them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? To me, I'm not sure that it does. I mean, I'm not yeah. convinced that we're just working with one person. I think that, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say it, but I think we're working with three. Sydney mm. has made her official statement. She represents yeah. the podcast. <laughs> Can we just talk for a second about the possibility there's three fucking serial killers on Long Island that still haven't been caught? What the fuck? Okay, we have bodies that are washing up on shore. Uh, we have bodies like peaches and the the uh, baby doe and Asian male doe. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're disposed of in almost a haphazard way. I mean, they're all dumped along Ocean Parkway, but it's not meticulous. Then we have the Manorville bodies who are dismembered, nude, and located in the same exact space. That is a compulsion that I don't think a killer just like I don't think he would stop killing, I don't think he would stop trying to dump it in the same place. Like, mm-hmm. I think he feels a specific need to control the situation and to dispose of his victims in that space. Unless, of course, access to that space is suddenly is, prohibited exactly. to him. Exactly. And in that case, it would only be in a scenario where that's due to external circumstances. Right, exactly. And then we have the Gilgo Four who are buried in burlap sacks. And as far as we know might have their clothes still on. They're not nude. Um, Or at least we haven't been told that. They were manually strangled, which is a very intimate way of killing someone. I mean, it takes a very long time. uh, And it takes a certain amount of strength. I mean, you know, not everyone can strangle someone it's very difficult it's a long time well i feel like that's you know like what you see in television or in movies Mm -hmm. is you know somebody like holds their neck for like Mm -hmm. two minutes and it's like okay it's done Mm -hmm. in reality what would actually happen is if they held it for two minutes they would just pass out Mm -hmm. exactly and you have to stare at them that entire time that's so terrifying when someone has their hands wrapped around a person and and that is what manual strangulation is right there's like ligature strangulation which is with a cord or a rope or a belt. Mm-hmm. And that is like a, a degree removed. Well, you could stand, I, I sound like a serial killer saying this, but like you could stand behind them yeah, and come up beh- yeah. from behind them. Exactly. 
And I learned that from like mafia movies. So like, don't at me guys. I'm not a killer. (laughs) Yeah. But when it comes to actually manually strangling someone, the brunt of the force comes from your thumbs, right? You're not putting, you're not applying the most amount of pressure with your um, other digits because you just don't have that ability. Obviously there's people who have like varying degrees of strength, but your thumb is really what applies that pressure to end someone's life. And that means Mm -hmm. that you're staring at someone Mm -hmm. from the front, usually watching this life go out of someone's eyes. And actually I'm going to quote Bond because he had written about this in psychology today. He said, you know, a lot of psychopathic killers who are experiencing that level of violence, it almost tranquilizes them. With the Gilgo Four, I think that's the type of person we're dealing with. We're dealing with Mm -hmm. someone who wants to feel so in control over everything that he feels like a god. So another thing that I think that we should think about and discuss here is um, the disposal method. Mm-hmm. So using one large dumping ground, you know, that stretch of Oak Beach is really different from what Schulman and Rifkin did, who, you know, they disposed of the bodies of their victims over a pretty large swath of the region. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And according to this New York Times profile, the killer's use of this kind of singular and out-of-the-way location indicates a really profound familiarity with the location of Jones Beach Island in general and of Ocean Parkway in particular. Mm-hmm. The fact that bodies were located off the Ocean Parkway makes way for another theory I've heard as well. Were these bodies dumped by someone driving from elsewhere as they traveled along Ocean Parkway? And I mean, I know that there was a lot of like thick brush where the bodies were found, but is it possible that essentially they're not even from the area and it was a convenient place to stop, a location that was far enough away from where they actually lived to not be associated Mm -hmm. with the crimes? I mean, I think it makes sense because of the like, level of transiency that is allowed for it when you're on like a major highway but I think that there's something about the person that's dumping these bodies they feel comfortable enough with the area that they know that if they pull over at one o'clock in the morning there's not going to be another car for two minutes three minutes and that's really all it takes Mm -hmm. to get a body out of the trunk if they need to. Yeah, the familiarity with traffic patterns is super important. Mm -hmm. You have to know like not only that you're not going to be interrupted but like if somebody comes down and like, or like sees that your car is pulled over and pulls over and says like, hey, like, do you need any help that you're going to be able to say like, no, I'm only like this far from where I need to go or I live in the area. It's okay. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you can carry yourself with that confidence mm-hmm. that you might not be able to if you're just, you know, thinking like this is a pretty convenient spot because it's isolated and out of the way. Totally. Yeah. In addition to that, it's also been theorized that some of these victims weren't the work of a serial killer at all. And instead, these were victims of gang or mafia, like mob-related mm-hmm. murders, um, because the Ocean Parkway and surrounding areas have been talked about and like theorized as a dumping ground for mob and gang-related hits in the past. So is it possible that because of the, the existing serial killers on Long Island, mm-hmm. the lines are getting blurred between whose is whose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely heard that theory before. And I think to some extent it holds ground because... We know when it comes to mafia hits that there are select locations to get rid of the person that you killed. Um, Mm. You know, obviously we've seen that in the movies, but as someone who has Mm -hmm. identified the remains of a mafia hit, I know for a fact that 
this is something that has been done multiple times. So yeah, I think that there's definitely that aspect to it. I also think that, you know, we think of sex workers as easy targets because there's this like preconceived idea of them as somehow being the less dead, which they're not. But I also think that, you know, there's an added level of were these women being killed by someone who is trying to control their bodies for profit? So, you know, did this have actually something to do with the work that they were in? Because, you know, for some reason they weren't performing to the level that they were expected to. Um, And the reason that I bring that up is because with Peaches, I know if you look closely at the picture of her tattoo, um, which, you know, I would only recommend for those who are okay with seeing what is clearly dead flesh. Yeah, I think we probably have those links up on our website under um, the episode where we covered her. If you look closely at Peach's tattoo, which is of a peach that has a bite taken out of it, you can kind of see that there are initials that are under the tattoo. I think it's on the leaf area. It's in Mm -hmm. like the lighter green part of the leaf area. Yeah, exactly. First of all, you know, when I first saw it, I I thought like, oh my gosh, maybe am I seeing something that uh, just looks like letters, but is actually just a design of the tattoo. But upon closer inspection, there's no like veins in the leaf. There's no reason for there to be those shaded areas, which makes me think that the peach might actually have been covering up a prior tattoo. And mm-hmm. we've talked about it before with aliases being tattooed onto a woman's body. But what if these are the initials of, you know, a pimp? Or what if these are the yeah. initials of an alias that she had when she was working somewhere else? Something identifiable. Mm-hmm. So it's something identifiable, but it's something that she wanted to cover up for some reason. And if that's the case, then, you know, are we seeing some sort of retaliation killing? Interesting. That's a really good point. Um, and I think like what we've noticed is with a few of these victims, like you were saying, they have had um, tattoos and they have been on their breast area. Um, is that the mark of a pimp or someone that is sex trafficking them? Mm-hmm. And yeah, were these related to being sex trafficked as opposed to a serial murderer? I think that's a really relevant point. Yeah. I mean, we've brought it up before with peaches and cherries, both having fruit tattoos on their breasts, but also Shannon had a tattoo of cherries on her left wrist, which obviously I'm not trying to make that connection, but I think it's important for us to think about, are these tattoos potentially telling us something a little bit more about their identity mm. or or who they're working with or is it just a complete coincidence which unfortunately there are so many of those mm. it's interesting So if we kind of go back to the discussion of burlap, where it always inevitably goes, if you kind of not ignore, but if you segue away from the idea of like this being a gang or mafia related hit, gang or mafia hits aren't ritualistic. Um, it's very like, it's this is more of a business transaction. And with the Gilgo Four, this is highly ritualized. So let's talk burlap sacks. Yeah. So burlap sacks, um, there are kind of two questions here of why the burlap sacks were used. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of them is that it could just be the easiest way to cover a body. And the other is that it could be part of a ritual. Mm -hmm. Now, 
burlap really isn't that common anymore. You know, it's not like you use a plastic bag and like that's Mm -hmm. very hard to trace. Mm -hmm. So this selection, according to Jim Clemente, who's a former FBI senior supervisory special agent in the behavioral analysis unit, says that that choice to go with the burlap sacks, which are easier to trace and harder to find, Mm -hmm. means that this kind of detracts from more of like the forensic sophistication or criminal sophistication. And it really increases the possibility that Lisk is just more interested in a ritual aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think that it also really shows why James Bissett should be considered a suspect because he was involved in a business that was one of the largest burlap distributors in the area. And, you know, like you said, Sarah, if this is a material that isn't as easy to come by, then in some way, shape or form, the person who has killed the Gilgo Four and potentially the others, if we want to link them together has to have a readily accessible and available supply of this. Exactly. So regardless of the fact that we might not have too much information surrounding James Bissett's potential involvement, I think that specific and significant point, coupled with the fact that he had committed suicide right after Shannon's body was found. That just screams alarm bells to me, personally. It really, really shows something is off. And then we also have the added fact that we haven't found any more bodies. So, yeah, you know, if he's dead, obviously he's not continuing to kill. And and if that's where that trail ends, then mm-hmm. again, is it a coincidence right. or not? Mm-hmm. And piggybacking off that, on the topic of burlap, Joel Rifkin has actually commented on this as well. And he's revealed his own take on what the use of burlap might reveal about the killer. So what he specifically said during prison interviews with reporters, he's told Newsday that he believes the killer could be a local resident who works in a job where no one would be suspicious if he carried burlap bags. In his words, he says, my guess is that it'd be someone like a landscaper, contractor or fisherman. So again, this ties into the idea of an average Joe, someone they can blend into the background without anyone realizing them. And that wouldn't be suspicious if they are using, you know, mass amounts of burlap, for example. I do think that, you know, it's also important to note that like Joel Rifkin definitely might have some sort of insight into the behavior and the murder pattern of Lisk because he himself is a psychopath and and a killer. But I think that it's really important to note that another FBI profiler named Mary Ellen O'Toole said that she thinks his musings are pretty unreliable and that he's just sort of, to be frank, talking out of his ass. She thinks that, you know, while there could be some truth and, you know, given the fact that burlap is not a readily available material, I Mm -hmm. think that that access needs to be thought of. But, you know, we can't take Rifkin's words as truth as we can't take any of his ideas or anything like that because he in many ways is a master manipulator but i do want to sort of add a grain of salt to that just thinking that you know is he just saying this because he wants attention Mm -hmm. and like saying that he has some sort of insight just things to think about yeah so guys the last theory that we're going to discuss and i think this is something that we've already hinted at and it's something a lot of people believe is that the suffolk county police department are involved in this murder whether it being one of their own or helping someone cover it up. So let's get into what we think their involvement is. So if you look at kind of just the basics um, in terms of the profile, especially in terms of the behavior of the Long Island serial killer, 
this is somebody who knows how to insert themselves into this case without getting involved. You know, if you look at the phone calls, Mm -hmm. they stay on the phone, but not long enough for it to be properly traced. They call from a location that is full of people knowing full well that because it is full of people and all these other signals coming from all these other cell phones, it's going to be really hard to catch that specific one. Uh And also, I mean, we know from our coverage of James Burke and just the Suffolk County Police Department in general at that time, there was a lot of covering up happening. There was a lot of corruption. (laughs) And even if it wasn't James Burke who was committing these crimes, even though a sex worker did implicate him in this, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to think that maybe this is someone who is somehow involved with the police department and they are covering for him. There's just too many aspects of this case that seem like they could have been solvable. And there's too many parts that seem like they were almost intentionally botched. Like, yeah having the mm-hmm. FBI not compile a profile and things like that, that it just, I don't know, when you add it all up together, it seems like someone's been trying to keep this from getting solved. And let's not forget the bag of dicks. <laughs> One of the articles that I was coming across today and just trying to like, uh, you know, make sure that we covered all the theories was a discussion about the suspects. And obviously James Burke went up on there and it talked about the incident with Christopher Lowe, but it also pointed out that he had sex with a sex worker in a police car once? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Yes. Like- that was um, when he had been in a relationship with a sex worker who had been charged uh, by his department multiple times. And one of the specific times that he was partaking in these behaviors is when he had actually on duty had sex with a sex worker in his car. And he also was using drugs that he got off of drug dealers and used his authority as a police officer to confiscate those drugs so that he could then Mm -hmm. use them. That's just so bad. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously James Burke, he's not a good guy. We know that for a fact. He was indicted under so many charges and he did terrible things. But there's also the added aspect that James Bissett, he actually knew Burke. It just seems like there is, again, that sort of like layers and layers of complexity of of people being involved with each other that maybe shouldn't or in ways that seem a little bit too conspicuously Mm -hmm. like creepy. I don't know. I just think in some way, shape or form, either the Suffolk County Police Department is involved or royally fucked up. Or at least mildly complicit. Exactly. I think that, you know, we've seen, and I'm sure anyone who is interested in true crime in any way, shape or form has seen those cases that could have been solved or that, you know, particular aspects of like the crime scene investigation or witness handling, they were just messed up so much that the police department then does everything they can to not solve it so that they don't implicate themselves in having messed up that much. I mean, let's look at John Benet Ramsey. How many people walked through the fucking basement before... They found the girl's body. Like, or the fact that they literally, they wiped down the kitchen. They were like, Mm -hmm. oh, we'll just go ahead and clean. It's like, yeah. Unfortunately, we see this in a lot of cases, both because of just plain old stupidity or Mm -hmm. because police departments in smaller towns, which really see that type of like violent, violent crime, Mm -hmm. might not have that experience handling it. But in some cases, I think it's just plain old bad cops. And I mean, 
Let's also not forget that it's pretty obvious in current day that cops get away with a lot. Totally. And in addition to that, they know how to get away with a lot. Mm-hmm. In terms of serial killers, someone like the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, he was an ex-cop. And so this is one of the reasons why he didn't get caught for so long is because he knew what to do to not get caught. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's a really strong possibility that this person is in law enforcement or knows someone in law enforcement and is therefore able to avoid detection. Yeah. The profile that we have come across is detailing someone who is not only extremely careful, but loves to be in control. And that aspect of their personality, it's going to feed into, you know, their everyday life. They're going to be drawn to positions of authority. So if they're not cops, are they lawmakers? Are they high-ranking positions in big companies that are based in Times Square. This is someone who we won't think twice about Mm -hmm. because they blend in. And this is someone who loves power and knows exactly what to do to get what he wants. Exactly. And lastly, we want to hear your theories. So if there's anything that we haven't covered in this episode, or if there's anything that you'd like to expand on more and give your two cents, we would love you to email us, DM us, contact us on any form of social media. And we want to hear from you and we want to hear what you think of the case. And so guys, please make sure you rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, send carrier pigeons. Shout it from your rooftop that that you love our podcast. (laughs) Yeah, send us your spooky shit, send us your theories, send us everything. Hey guys, you ready for some spooky shit? Welcome back, everyone. Hello. Hello. It's been like two seconds. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around. I still <laughs> love our, our spooky shit introductions as if no one's been listening. <laughs> I mean, you never know. Maybe they just only skipped this, which I yeah. hope not. But if you do, I'll take it. Uh, that's okay, too. Yeah. Honestly, do you. Do whatever you need to do to stay sane in these days and yeah. ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and if listening to some spooky shit is what that is, then keep spooky shitting it up. Just shit it, Stay shit it all the way up. Shit that spooky shit, all, right? All, all of it. Just all of it. All of it. Every single one of all it. All of the shits. <laughs> Every single shit that you take, make it spooky. So guys, I did something particularly spooky the other week. So um, for those uh, New Yorkers are familiar with Long Island, um, I went on a hike um, down Long Island and ended up at the Kings Park Psychiatric Center. Have you guys heard of that place? I haven't, actually. (laughs) Well, neither had I, being from Australia. Um, But one of my friends took me there. And so it's an abandoned psychiatric hospital, which is beautifully scary and so creepy. And it literally looks like it could be like the setting for a horror movie. It's these beautiful buildings that are all like boarded up. Um, Some windows are smashed out. It's kind of like a perfect combination between completely like decrepit and eerily beautiful. Mm -hmm. I would love to be there at nighttime because it'd be even freakier. (laughs) And so, um, so it's known by Kings Park locals as the Psych Center and it's a former state run psychiatric hospital located in Kings Park, New York. It operated from 1885 until 1996 
when wow, um, the state so of New long. York. I know it's a long yeah. it's so time. Recent. Hey. Yeah, and um, they when they closed it down, they transferred still um, like remaining patients to the still operational Pilgrim Psychiatric Center. But so this, like there are so many buildings here. It's literally like going to like a college with many, many, many different buildings. Um, and we were just like, hmm, I wonder if like we can find a, you know, a door open that we can just happen to like walk inside. So we ended up finding a, um, a wind, like a window that someone had already, you know, like opened up. So we figured we'd just take a peek inside and we're walking through all these like creepy hallways there's broken glass everywhere. It's really dark and you just kind of feel like there's like a thousand eyes staring at you. And we come across this room and in the middle of the room, there is this brand new stuffed toy sitting very upright, placed in the exact middle of the room. Like someone had just been playing with him and put him just directly in the middle of the room. Heel girl and- laughter in the background. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. I mean, it's a very strong possibility. Someone's like, I'm going to fuck with people, but who the hell goes to the effort of purchasing a new toy and breaking into a mental asylum and placing it there? Like, and this isn't easy to get to, like, it takes quite a while to get to this place. So I don't know. Either way, it's fucking weird. Would you have been more creeped out if it had been like a really, really old doll? Uh. Oh, we saw those too. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> In another room, there was um, this really old mattress that had this like paisley print on it. So like, it looked like it was decades old. And lined up in a perfect row on it were all of these really old faded toys with what was really sad is there were several different photos framed of someone's mother and it Mm. had written on it to my mom. So I don't know what happened here. I don't know if someone's mother was um, housed there, if someone was living there and this was like a tribute that they had to their mother while they were living there or like squatting there, should I Mm -hmm. say. I don't know, but it was really fucking creepy. And then to make things worse or better, depending on how you look at it. So we're going through the kitchen and the kitchen, it's completely pitch black in there. You can't see anything. The only light you have is out the other side. I'm going to go ahead and pass on that. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know why we're in there, but you know, like, let's do it. And we see two silhouettes at the opposite end where the light is coming in. No. And we're like... Okay, like I at this t- at this time I literally spooky shot myself because <laughs> we're in an abandoned asylum asylum and there's Mm-mm. no one else meant to be there and there are two silhouettes there. Mm-mm. But then they just keep walking towards us and we hear this, "Oh, hey guys." <sighs> <laughs> so it turns out that two other people had the same idea as us, but actually just found a completely open door in the other side so they didn't have to go through the laborious task of like hoisting ourselves up. Uh, open window which was a much better idea and there were just two other people like us you know spooky seekers urban urban explorers that were just like you know looking to get a little bit spooky as well and yeah I just it was just I couldn't believe that there were two other people in there who had the same idea as us and it was such a fun experience I'm not recommending anyone breaks into any public places but um, but if you're in the area and there happens to be an open window (laughs) or an open door take a peek in you don't know what you'll find you might get you know another stuffed toy just say if you're short on a christmas present there you go stop by i know where where a completely new one is that you can get right now well maybe the the place was actually like calling to you guys like maybe there's a reason why there was multiple people like coming in you know maybe sometimes that happens with supernatural spots 
like supernatural hot this spots. Is true. I did make sure on the way out I said goodbye. Yeah, and close so that portal. Would be following <laughs> yeah, me. please. Close that fucking shit right Sage up. Sage the shit out of yourself, yeah. my friend. Oh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So if anyone knows anything about Kings Park Psychiatric Center, has any um, stories or anything, Ooh, let us stories. know. Yeah. We mm. want to hear from you guys. We're so into hearing your spooky stories. It's amazing. Please. We love them. Please send us more. It's actually the highlight of many of our days. Yes. yes. Agreed. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's it for today's episode. We only have a couple left. So make yeah. sure if you haven't listened to all, all of our <laughs> episodes, go back because this case is absolutely crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll also hear some crazy spooky shit. Um, And make sure to listen to our mini-sodes because we get into some pretty insane Long Island serial killer shit and also just dive deep into Joel Rifkin where we actually have some never-before-heard testimonies on one of the victims. So, This is Ossuary, over and out.